Well, hello, I'm Tony Payne, and welcome to the first edition of Two Ways News, a new podcast venture between me and Philip Jensen, where we aim to bring the Christ-centred message of the Bible to bear on our lives and ministries today, or in the words of our little tagline, Gospel Thinking for Today. Now, you might be here and listening because you are a subscriber to The Painful Truth. That's the podcast and newsletter that I have been running up to now and which has morphed into this new thing. You may be a Philip Jensen podcast listener or someone who's on the email list for Two Ways Ministries and have come here as well. Or you might just have found us through the mysteries of the internet and be tuning in for the first time. Whoever you are, very warm welcome. And I hope you enjoyed the jaunty opening music. Always difficult to choose opening music for a podcast. Philip, a challenge for you. Uh, did you know what that piece of music was? I didn't, but I did find out. But I was a little insulted. I would have thought a violin and a viola rather than just two violins. Yes. I mean, we don't both squeak. <laughs> well, of course, it's Bach's double concerto. He's concerto for two violins. Get it? Two yes. ways news, double yes. concerto. Yes. Okay, so let's get on to what we're doing in this edition of Two Ways News. We're not going to say too much at the beginning about what to expect and how we're going to do everything. We thought the best thing to do was just to get into it and to show you the kind of uh, podcast that this is going to be. And our topic for today is freedom of speech and censorship. And Philip, when you suggested we do this topic a couple of weeks ago and we started preparing for it, we didn't realise that between then and now the Andrew Thorburn thing was going to happen, which gave us a kind of interesting dilemma, didn't it? Yes. I mean, the idea of censorship was one of my suggestions. We could then have a very, very short podcast. Of course, the rest is censored. <laughs> but censorship's a live and current problem that you're really struggling with in our society at many levels. But the Andrew Thorburn event with Essendon Football Club was one that heightens the issue. It gives a specific example of the issue, but like all specific examples, it, it doesn't give you the general theory, the general problem. It just is an illustration of... It's the presenting issue of a particular problem. And we need to talk about the big problem, but then we can't ignore the presenting issue that's been filling our newspapers for two weeks. Exactly. And for those who are overseas or whose Facebook news feed uh, algorithm hasn't told them about Andrew Thorburn, if you've been living under a rock or in some way you don't know what's been talked about. Uh, a quick summary for those of you who might not have, have heard of this, especially our, our listeners from other countries. Andrew Thorburn is a leading Australian businessman, well-known Australian uh, business leader. He was recently appointed the CEO of a large football club in one of our states in Victoria, the Essendon Football Club. And this is a big deal. AFL football is a big deal in, in Australia. But only one day after taking up this position as CEO, he was given an ultimatum by the board of Essendon Football Club. You can remain as CEO of this football club, or you can remain as the chairman of the church council of the Anglican church that you're part of, but you may not do both. You have to choose. And the basis he was given for this ultimatum was the incompatibility of those two positions, because someone had gone through and found some sentences from some sermons of that church back in 2013, which compared the rate and consequences of abortion in Australia to the Holocaust, and which also stated that homosexual activity was sinful. And so despite these being, as you know, completely uncontroversial views of Christianity for the last 
hundreds and thousands of years. And despite this sermon being given before Andrew Thorburn had actually joined the church or was chairman of the church, and despite him never having actually expressed those views publicly himself, and despite him having a good record of business management in a very large corporation, the fact that he was chairman of the church council rendered him an improper person to be CEO of the football club, and so he fell on his sword and resigned. And just to make it all the sharper as an incident, in this whole question, the Premier of Victoria, the Premier of the state, weighed in to say that he had no sympathy whatsoever for Thorburn's position and said these words, and I quote, those views are absolutely appalling. I don't support those views, that kind of intolerance, that kind of hatred, bigotry. It's just wrong to dress that up as anything other than bigotry is just obviously false. So that's a quick summary of where we came to and what happened. And look, there's so much to dig into, Philip, in, in those it, incidents. It, that's not a bad summary. But of course, as with all summaries, as with all descriptions, you know, it, it has its loaded... There's, there's a whole set of issues in there that are just, frankly, distractions from what the issue is at hand. Andrew Thorburn wasn't even a member of the church when that particular sermon was preached. And he has not said he agrees or disagrees with that sermon. But that's an irrelevance because that church still believes those things. The pastor has said that he wouldn't express it that way these days, but he still actually believes the same things. It's just he, he looks back at his youthfulness back in 2013 and thinks, well, that's a slightly crass uh, description. But he's actually not backing down. And it's not as if Andrew is just a member of a church. He is the chairman of the board of the church. So uh, there's a certain lots of details that people are bringing out, which are fair enough to bring out the details so that we know what actually happened. But other details are irrelevant. Uh, the fundamental issue is he was given a choice between the CEO of the football club or the chairmanship of his church because it was said that those two positions are incompatible for moral speech reasons, for theology, for philosophy, for that those two things were... In, you can't be both. The uh, leader of a church that preaches what it preaches and the leader of a football club which has a social value system of... Inclusion, as it is called. So it is a free speech issue underneath, yeah. do you think? Free speech and free association. The freedom of association is another important quality of our society. Over many years, I can join any club I want to. I can associate with any people I want to associate. But now, apparently, if you are in the association of the Essendon Football Club, it is inappropriate, incompatible with being in the membership of this particular church, or, well, as you point out, almost any church, because nearly all churches believe these things. And I may say, praise God, he chose church over, over business. I mean, he would have been making a lot of money as the CEO of a big professional football club, and he chose God rather than mammon. There are all kinds of ironies and double standards and hypocrisies, of course, involved. And we could probably spend the next half hour enjoying those. I mean, there's there's Daniel, there's Daniel, the hypocrisy of Daniel Andrews 
declaring that he's a good Catholic and that he goes to church and he's a man of Catholic faith, and yet somehow his membership of that association, which believes exactly the same things as City on the Hill in this instance, uh, apparently doesn't disqualify him from being Premier of Victoria. No, I mean, his comments about bigotry <laughs> were bigoted, <laughs> really. I wrote down a definition of bigotry just for my yeah. own interest here. The dictionary says that bigotry is a stubborn and complete intolerance of any creed, belief or opinion that differs from one's own. Yes. I mean, the irony drips from that, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> he is that. Whereas the track record of Mr Thorburn when he was the CEO of a bank, or I've forgotten his exact title in the bank, but it was one of the major banks of Australia, was that he actually helped and encouraged people uh, who came from the LGBTQI kind of background in, the de- in their development within the banking career. So <laughs> it's exa- his record was of one of non-bigotry. The treatment of him by others has been bigotry. Yes. It's been very interesting. Yeah. Um, so as you know, there's lots of angles we, can, we could dig into and, and enjoy in discussing this, this controversy. But, but they're under- just dealing with the presenting issues, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, they're underneath. not really getting exactly. to the issue. So why is it an issue of speech? Or let me put it this way. Why do people want to silence the speech? And views of other people. Well, it's got to do with the nature of speech itself, hasn't it? God created speech. He's the first speaker. He spoke and the world came into existence. The way in which he created the world was by his speech. That magnificent first chapter of the Bible, and God said, let there be, and there was which the psalmist says, by the words of the Lord, the, the heavens were made. And, and so speaking is very powerful. Words, the words have two things about them. They have power and truth. And that is, they do things. And they do things in relation to the reality that is there. So the Premier is not going to go out and build roads, but by his words, he can get other people to build roads. His words are powerful words because he is a powerful person within society. But God is all-powerful and his words create the universe. And so we believe in the possibility of truth because we believe in reality and we believe that truth can be expressed through speech because God is not dumb. God speaks and creates us in his image. So we believe in the power of speech because God speaks with power and truth. There are several ways you can react to speech that you don't agree with. One, you can listen and disagree and argue and say, no, that's not reality, that's not truth. Have you considered this? Have you considered that? And seek to persuade the person to a better, clearer understanding of the truth. Or secondly, you can just Ignore what people are saying. You can turn the switch off on your television or on your radio or on this podcast. Please don't turn it off now. Keep listening. You know, but you or can... you can sit in church for years and years and years and just not listen. Yes. Like that's nominal Christianity really, isn't it, a way? In, yes, in a way. I remember seeing someone who, a university lecturer, who always, when the music was on, listened, but as soon as the preacher got on to preach, would pull out their marking and mark the, their papers until the preacher stopped preaching and then went back to listening to the music. I mean, you could just ignore what is being said. 
Well, the third alternative, though, is you stop the person from speaking. You don't like the message, so you shoot the messenger. You, you cancel their opportunity. You deplatform them. You take away any chance for them to say anything anywhere. Which is one of the effects of, of this latest incident, or it's part of that trajectory in our culture, to, to silence and exclude? Because well, I mean, what's the effect of the Andrew Thorburn incident on churches and on speaking and on Christians? It's, it's a chilling effect on expressing views. You would think twice. If you were a member of those churches, you'd think twice, do I want to be a member of this church? Is it going to be the end of my career? That is why the Premier is calling it uh, bigotry, intolerance, hatred, you see, is really saying those things must not be expressed. Yes. Must not be expressed anywhere, by anyone, at any time. And if we ever find out that you have expressed them, we will punish you, we will exclude you, we will, we will silence you, we will cancel you. That then puts terrific pressure on people to watch their words, to be careful. It's, you know, it's 1984 country, isn't it? It's, it's living in Stalinist Russia, it's living in, in today's China. You've got to be very careful what you say because they're listening and they can stop you because you said those things. So how do we come to this point as a culture? Because, I mean, traditionally, Western culture has been built on the values of free speech, freedom of association, freedom of conscience. These are foundational kind of Western ideas. Uh, the freedom to say what you want to say, to, to disagree, the famous supposed quote from Voltaire, you know, hmm. I disagree with what you yep. say, but I'll defend to the death your right to say it, all this kind of thing. This has been our culture and in a sense what we grew up with. But it doesn't seem to be the case in our society. Uh, well, it's less and less the case in our society now. Well, what's changed? What's happened? What's, what's underneath this? There's a great conflict taking place between two groups in our society that we Christians aren't part of. We're actually, in a sense, sitting on the fence watching the fight taking place. Or getting caught in the crossfire. And, unfortunately, every time we get off the fence, we get caught in the crossfire, <laughs> yes. And it's, it's the, the conflict that is taking place between the Enlightenment liberal humanism and the postmodern progressive tribalism. Okay, we need to dig into what those two things are. All right, well, the background is the Enlightenment. Start back in there, you see. What are we talking? 18th century mm -hmm. and so on. Uh, they were very optimistic at that point that you could find the truth. They believed in the truth because, after all, the 18th century was still coming out of a Christian worldview. They believed in the truth and they believed that somehow you could find it through rationality or through empiricism, through the development of science and the like, or even the romantists, uh, the romantics of that kind of period through their imagination. But there was truth. And truth could be expressed in words, or mathematical symbols anyway. It could be truth. And therefore, what we do is we debate the truth, we argue, we discuss it, we research. And so to have that kind of debate, freedom of speech was essential. Freedom of ideas was essential. Freedom of association was essential. This is the humanist, liberal idea. Debate, tolerance. You have your view, I have my view, let's sit down and talk about it. And out of that, we might come to some better truth together. We might get closer to the truth. Yes. Or at least I might correct you and say that you can agree with me. Yeah. But we will, we will seek to do that. 
in some ways, you see, Christians didn't find this all that difficult because they were discussing and debating the things that Christians believed in, and Christians believe in debate and discussion and words as well. And we believe in truth, as they believed in truth. We disagreed with what it's about. It it wound up with kind of Christian morality without Christianity, Christian discussion and enlightenment without Christianity. But it did lead to our intellectual debates with atheism and humanism. And can you be moral without a Christian foundation? There's one side. The other side really has come in the fore, come to the fore since, what, the 1980s? But it's been there a lot longer. You can take it back to Kierkegaard and, and to existentialists way back before that. It's the postmodernism that has come, where there's no belief in absolute truth or objective truth or being objective. And so what we have in this is my opinion and your opinion, my journey, your journey, my experience, your experience. My truth and your truth. My truth and your truth. And to be in any position of power requires to be in a tribe. And I use speech to persuade people to join my tribe, to to align people with me or exclude people from me. But truth, well, truth is not what you are seeking after in terms of your speech. Um, in a way, the, the critique of the Enlightenment project by postmodernism was quite correct. Yes. The idea that you could pursue and find truth on your own without any objective or overarching truth uh, to guide or establish that was always a doomed project. Yes, that's right. Speech without God who speaks is just the sinful human mind expressing itself. And who's to say? Who's to say whether what you're saying is true or or not? Or maybe you're just trying to get it over me by what you're saying. And and so many of the intellectuals, uh, so-called, actually, when their private life is looked at, they were just expressing their own sinfulness. I mean, there was that book by Paul Johnson called The Intellectuals, where he goes through about 20 or so of the so-called intellectuals, famous great people, just showing how their private immorality really coloured and affected their kind of philosophical research and outworking from Margaret Mead to Dr Kinsey to, mm-hmm. to Freud to the rest of them. And uh, it, it was, they were just expressing their sinfulness in very clever terms, really. And so Christians must be warned against jumping on the Enlightenment bandwagon because we are, we're used to that kind of traditionalist way of thinking and saying all postmodernism is bad because postmodernism's critique of modernism is by and large right. Exactly. It's why we interestingly find ourselves kind of as fellow travellers are on the same side in many of these issues with the old liberals writing in the newspapers with Janet Albrechtson and other people like this who really are classic humanist liberals in many respects and are kind of fighting for, hang on, we believe in freedom of speech. Um, And so we almost feel like we're we're co-belligerents with them in this thing, but we're different. They've come out for Andrew Thorburn very Very strongly. strongly. Yeah. Yeah. 
But as we'll say, as we'll go on to talk about in a second, we're we're different. We we're not really either. But before I get to that, I just want to want to come back to something else that's different between the Enlightenment project and postmodernism, and that's the attitude between private and public. Because yes. in the Enlightenment world, you sort of you could hold whatever opinion you wanted to privately, so long as in the public space, in the workplace, you left your private faith and belief at the door. That was very much the case, but that's not the case so much now. No, and it, it's not just in the public square. Um, it, it's in the business. If you join up with a particular business, you, the Enlightenment, when you went to work, you left your opinions at the door. They used to say, you know, you never talk about religion or politics. Uh, that's, that's outside the scope. And so I'm working for this bank... What's this bank about? Well, it's providing certain things for customers. It's providing profits for the shareholders. That's my job. That's all I do. And my own private thoughts about that mustn't come into the financial decisions that are being made here. But the, the postmoderns, the existentialist says, but that's inauthentic living. That is, that is bifurcating yourself. That's, that's not you being true to yourself. You must bring your values into every boardroom that you're in because the oppression of women or the oppression of Indigenous Australians or whatever it may come through the company, through the bank that's operating, must be stopped. Uh, We've got to change the world by being authentic people ourselves. And so all kinds of morality is brought into the boardroom it can be any kind of boardroom, like the Essendon football boardroom. All kinds of morality is brought in that is, in a sense, irrelevant to the activity, to the company. I mean, I would have thought the aim of an Essendon football club had to do with playing football, of providing football for people, providing football for people to watch. That's what it's about. But no especially since it's become professionalised, the football is not there. It's got to do with the fact that there are owners to it now. And the footballers have to be role models to society. And in the public relations exercise of football clubs, you have to present certain things which will be acceptable to the society. And the kinds of postmodern people who will join the board would say, more than that, we have to change every part of society to be moral like we are. It's a political project, yeah. And so, yes, football's not football. Football's a political project. It's a a society-changing project that we're involved in. And at that point, it seems a little difficult for the... Well, it's impossible for the Enlightenment thinker. (laughs) But Christian's... We're not really either, are we? We're not Enlightenment liberals. We're not postmodern politicos. We're, we're well, kind we're, of neither, but... We're both. But we're both in the same way. <laughs> That's right. Talk there, to me about that. Well, there's certain elements which we'd want to say that we're both. You see, I remember seeing it with the appointment of out-and-out Christians here in New South Wales, our police commissioner, our premier, and the vice-chancellor of Sydney University, all were well-known Bible-believing Christians. When they were appointed, they were immediately criticised 
because they were Christian people and the kind of argument that was being run by the public uh, secularist media was how can these people who are Christian govern for all the people and each of them very in one sense correctly but another sense very much enlightenment way said well of course that is my responsibility in this office is to govern for all the people and so I'm not going to bring in my Christianity into the office so to speak I'm leaving it at the door I don't want to criticize them because they're very fine people and they all three of them did a very fine job but actually what they should have said was the other thing that is yes I'm going to take my Christianity into the office the, the media wouldn't let them say that it would have been a bad choice of words but I'm going to take the, my Christianity into the office because as a Christian I want to bring Christian values into the office because Christian values are inclusive. Christian values are caring for all the people. I mean, the university, Christian values are the pursuit of truth, the integrity of research and honesty, the making sure that all the people in a university, there's thousands around a university, it's a huge little village, that one, that all of them are treated kindly, fairly, with freedom of speech and free. That is, the values of Christianity in that institution would have improved the institution and would have been thoroughly consistent with the purpose of the institution. Likewise, if a Christian police commissioner, New South Wales has a long track record of corrupt police commissioners. Finally getting one who believed in the integrity of justice and truth and righteousness... You'd want them to bring that Christianity to the police. <laughs> and he did. Uh, and he, he retired distinguished for being unlike so many of his predecessors. Let's bring it back to speech and, and the Christian attitude to speech in particular because we believe in truth. We believe in speaking the truth and the freedom to speak the truth and exercising responsibility in speaking the truth. But we're not coercive about it. We're not... Tribalists, we don't want to silence people or overpower them as a way of getting them to our point of view. And I guess that's because we, we want to preach the gospel. We want to see the gospel have its way in people's lives. And we believe that the truth that the gospel brings really is only effective as God's power works within that gospel. I guess what I want to ask you then is, what's our attitude to, to language or speech we don't like? If we say that we don't want to be coercive, we don't want to be censors or to silence people, what is the Christian attitude to something we disagree with or to falsehood when we hear it? Partly you've got a question of what has historically been the attitude and what should be the attitude. Yep. Because historically we haven't always done the right thing, depending on who the we are in that sentence. You know, I'm not a Roman Catholic, uh, but... Roman Catholicism comes within the broad band of Christianity and the Spanish Inquisition was hardly a expression of freedom of speech, I would have thought. <laughs> um, but there's no point washing my hands of that. I mean, poor John Bunyan was locked up uh, by the Anglican Church, of which I am a minister, uh, for 12 years for preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, we got Pilgrim's Progress out of it, but still. So we have... When in power, censored other viewpoints in a way that I think is inappropriate 
And I think we learnt, uh, in part, we learnt from enlightenment. Uh, it was part of the truth that they rebuked us about. Uh, You're talking about the blasphemy laws, for example? Well, yes, blasphemy. You know, in a Christian community, it is inappropriate to blaspheme God's name. But a nation is not a Christian community. And the confusion of nation with church, which took place in the medieval years, and so you know, you've got a thousand years of this confusion, meant that governments put in place what churches can be involved in, congregations have been involved in. So if you, Tony, started to blaspheme, I'd say, no, Tony, don't say that. That's not the right thing to be saying. You shouldn't take God's name in vain like that. And I'd be right to do that as a brother to a brother. But as a government to a citizen or a, sub, a king to a subject, that is inappropriate. That's not Christian fellowship. So, yes, we censor ourselves and each other appropriately. And see, again, this is something that our non-Christian friends don't understand. They look at the terrible language that's used in the abuse of the homosexual community, for example. But in my experience of living in Christian fellowships for all my life, 70 years of it, I've never heard a Christian say those things. Oh, well, I'd, we'll add just, my slightly less number of years, but still maybe, you know, 40, yeah. 40-ish and a bit more years living in Christian communities likewise. I've yeah. never heard anyone we speak don't, in that way. We don't use vulgar language. No. We've censored vulgarity out of our language. In fact, you know, the Bible teaches us in Ephesians 5, etc., that you, you, you do not tell crass, crude jokes. That that's the, not the kind of... We value speech too much to allow it to be degenerated like that. The community may, but because the community does and because our secularists don't know us, they assume that we do. But we don't do that at all. I mean, I'm sure there are some Christians have somewhere, sometime, you'll know one that does. But basically, the, a dirty joke is not something told in church. And if it is, a person is gently corrected not to be like that. And so our censorship is a self-censorship, a brotherly censorship. Unfortunately, the confusion of church and state in previous centuries meant that our self-brotherly censorship turned into a governmental censorship, which was, I'm sure, inappropriate and wrong. So in one sense, the, the kind of approach to our own speech is to, to self-censor in an appropriate way as Christians, to guard our lips and to speak only what is true and to speak in love and so on. But I guess another way of looking at it is that we have to make sure we don't censor ourselves. Absolutely, yes. That's right. I'm glad you came to that because that's, that's the other side of that coin that I just heard you saying. That is, I must speak up the truth. I must speak the truth in love. In my relationship with the people that I'm speaking to, I must speak the truth of the gospel. It's not loving to let people go on living a lie. I need to speak out that this is a lie. This does not work. This is untrue. This is not real. And I mustn't censor the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I must censor my own sinfulness. But I mustn't censor the gospel Unfortunately, we're tempted to censor the gospel 
and to speak like Australians. Let me finish by posing a curly one then. For churches and ministries all around the place, and and certainly in your ministry at Two Ways Ministries, you've got a huge online library of sermons. (laughs) Yes. Most churches these days have online sermons there. Yes. Um, just waiting for some journalist or activist to trawl back through them and find some offensive sentence that, that we've said. What should we do? Should we leave our sermons up? I've known some churches and some organisations have already started thinking, well, we should just take things quietly down. What do you think? Should we leave our sermons up or take them down? There's several different things on it, isn't there? Firstly is people do not understand what sermons are. Sermons have got to do with pastors speaking to congregations. Yes, you can record it, but for the people who weren't there, they do not know the situation and they do not know how to evaluate the situation because what you will say to a congregation at a particular time, moment or moment is slightly different to what you'd say in a different situation. That's where the postmoderns are right, that uh, language is a relational activity and in the relationship you're in, that's where you say what you say the way you say it. In a different relationship, a different context, you may say it differently. Whereas once it goes up on the web, it becomes depersonalised and absolutized. Decontextualised, de-relationalised. It's just just words floating without their relational context. Yes. So uh, if you go onto philipjensen.com, there's a little introduction to each of the talks telling you when and where it was recorded. But if you don't understand what it was like to go to a campus Bible study at a lunchtime... You in 1987. In 1987, <laughs> you, you don't understand actually why I was saying what I was saying the way I was saying it or how I was approaching it. Um, so there is this problem of, of this. Further, there's another problem, that is the written word is very different to the spoken word. <laughs> for those of you who don't know Tony and I, we've been working on this for a long time. Tony writes and I speak. And when I write, Tony finds it easier just to start again. And when it, it just it's it's a different skill, it's a different art form, it's a different communication method. And so when people go into old libraries of talks and find sentences and then write them down, they actually have a different logic to them, a different way of perceiving. So therefore, I can, I can understand why people don't want to leave their talks up. There's a, there's a vulnerability you have. But on the other hand, no, this is untrue censorship. This is what we shouldn't do. We should leave our talks up. Go back to the Andrew Thorburn one. There was a sentence in a sermon in 2013 about abortion and an illustration used of how in future years we may look back and see the history of this wholesale abortion industry with the same sense of guilt and unhappiness as people can look back at the Holocaust. And now, as a result of this controversy, the pastor is being put on pressure to back down from this statement. I don't see why. In fact, I'd do the exact reverse. I'd heighten it. You see, the point he's making is a very important and good point. At the moment, if you have Down syndrome, you have no right to live. 
you can be killed at the will and whim of anybody who wants to kill people with Down syndrome. You say, well, no, no, Philip, it's not like that. That's not true. I'm saying, yes, it is true. And the people who are doing the killing are the doctors who abort children who have Down syndrome. And I call that a genocide. Because you've discerned that people who are in some way less physiologically perfect than you have no right to live. That is a dreadful thing that our society is doing. That is a wicked thing. That is an evil thing. So rather than backing off and saying, well, I wish I said it slightly differently, I think he's now given the opportunity to make the point more clearly. (laughs) Because I think in the centuries ahead, we're going to look back and say, we've done the wrong thing here. What are we going to say in years to come about India and China aborting millions of babies because they were female? I think that is an appalling eugenics and worse. It's a genocide. And I don't think it helps being told not to say these things, that it's somehow shameful to say it. And the Premier doesn't scare me in this regard. I think he has failed to understand and we need to talk together about this issue. But preaching is a powerful form of communication that should not be toned down by saying, oh, well, somebody could misquote it. Yes, of course they could. The example of the New Testament strikes me here that we're kind of almost finding ourselves in a similar situation, a situation where there's no shared enlightenment tolerance, where people are slandered uh, and rejected as the scum of the earth for preaching the the gospel and the message of Jesus and where the, the key thing is power and whether I can kill you or not. And I suspect that um, as, as the Christianity-infused Western Enlightenment values of tolerance and free speech break down, we're kind of returning to a situation of it's more normal in much of human culture and history where who's in power tribally and politically is the significant thing, not what the truth is. Yes. And as Christians in that context, we speak the truth. We commend ourselves to everyone's conscience by the plain and open statement of the truth and entrust ourselves to God. And if we get it wrong, we get corrected by the truth. I'm not claiming papal infallibility. <laughs> the Pope shouldn't either. It's, it's not that. We're open to the reason, to the arguments, to the discussion. But when you are silenced, then you're not open to the reason, the discussion. And that's why modernism is right, the Enlightenment's right. But we mustn't stop speaking. This is where postmoderns are right. We've got to be authentically Christian, which means we need to speak up in the public square. I'm a citizen, I'm a taxpayer. The theory is that I have freedom of speech in the public square. I have as much right to be in the public square as any other citizen, as any other taxpayer. But for somehow, they're saying, no, no, you can't speak in the public square because you're a Christian. Well, I'm sorry, you won't be able to silence me that way unless, of course, this is a tyranny and I must obey the emperor.
But even then, I will tell you about Jesus and you won't be able to shut me up. That's maybe a good place for us to round off our conversation, Philip. Uh, thank you. And thank you for raising and suggesting this topic. And that's how it's kind of going to work each week, dear listener. We're going to kind of alternate. One week, Philip's going to raise a topic and drive most of the content and do most of the thinking about it. Uh, and in the alternate week, as we've already suggested today, he's the speaker, I'm the writer. I'll write something and we'll talk about that thing uh, that I've written. But in both of those kind of forms, the aim will be to do what we've done today, to bring the biblical gospel of Jesus to bear on these issues and to challenge our thinking and shape our thinking so that we can understand and live and minister in the name of Jesus uh, more faithfully. And there's a number of ways you can be involved in, in the Two Ways News and receive Two Ways News. Um, you can get it in the podcast app of your choice. We're on Apple iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all the normal platforms. You can find us there. You can sign up even better, I think, to the email list at twoways.news. That's twoways.news. And each week you get an email from us that has the podcast audio in the email. You can just click on it and listen or you'll have the newsletter version, the text version of the same content. So we'll be writing up the content of this conversation into an edited, punchier, sharper kind of version, and that will be in the email as well. And that's very easy to share with others, of course, just to forward them on that email so that they can listen or read themselves as well. I should say it's completely free to sign up. You can sign up for that email and get the newsletter and podcast every week. Although if you would like to join what we're calling our supporters club, that's also an option when you're signing up. You can chip in a few dollars uh, to contribute to the costs of running Two Ways News and keeping it going. In particular, um, paying for my salary in the work that I'm doing in keeping all this happening. And the only other thing to say is that we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear your comments on what we've said or your questions or clarifications about the content of this episode and your own responses and, and feedback to that. We'd love to hear suggestions from you as to things you'd like us to talk about. And getting in touch is easy. If you've received the email version of this podcast, just hit reply to the email and that will come to us. Or if you're just listening in a podcast app, and you don't have access to that email, you can email me at tonyjpain at me.com. We'd love to hear from you. Well, to round off this week, as we plan to do each week, uh, we're going to pray. Philip, would you want to lead us in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who speaks. We thank you that you have spoken to us and that you've created us in your image and we can hear and understand what you say. Do Heavenly Father, give us hearts and minds that are willing and open to listen to you and faithfulness to speak your words to others. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.